Hello and welcome. I'm Jordan Rich, Boston-based broadcaster and podcaster and colleague and friend of court reporter extraordinaire Diane Godfrey. Today our guest is criminal attorney J. Drew Segadelli, an experienced criminal attorney with a reputation for handling tough, complex criminal cases. He's one of the very few attorneys on Cape Cod who's been placed on the murder list. That's a list used to select counsel for murder cases. He's appeared on numerous TV shows, both locally and nationally, and has been featured in many magazines and newspapers, including Lawyers Weekly, The Cape Cod Times, The Banner, numerous podcasts, and a documentary on the BBC. Today, we focus on a bizarre true crime case with our guest, Attorney Segadelli, defending Adrian Loya, charged with killing one woman and wounding her partner. It's a fascinating case, and Diane, I know you're anxious to get started, so take it away. Hi, Drew. Uh, good afternoon, folks. Drew Segadelli, representing Adrian Loya, L-O-Y-A, <laughs> as opposed to the lawyers we all know and love. See, he's a seasoned, he's, seasoned pro. We can, we, good night. <laughs> we can go home now. Right. No. Um, this is Diane Godfrey, as you know, and I had asked, recently I met Drew for the first time down in a court going towards Cape Cod. He and I were on a murder case together, and while deliberations were taking place, we began to speak. And he started to, you know, I don't know how we got into it, but he started to tell me about this horrific case, this infamous case. And it was jaw-dropping. And I said to him, you know what? How about if you come on the podcast? People want to hear from people like Drew, so. Now, the thing is, I, you, I, I know... You started to tell me, and as you as it went on, I, I was just speechless. And I Googled it, you know, getting ready for this for mm-hmm. today. And I can tell you what I came up with, Drew. First of all, this was big news. It was in the Chicago Tribune. We're over here in Little Massachusetts. And I came upon a burnt car, a photo of a terribly torched car. I came upon a photo of two lovely young women. Mm-hmm. And one of which is the decedent. The, that's just a fancy name for someone that was dead person. So let's start from the beginning. This event took place, as far as I can tell, February 5th of 2015 in the wee hours of the morning in Bourne, Massachusetts. First of all, can you pe- tell the people that aren't familiar what Bourne is, what kind of a town? Uh, well, Bourne, Massachusetts, I, most people know of it because of the infamous one of two bridges, the Bourne Bridge, which is located in Bourne, Massachusetts, and the Sagamore Bridge over the Sandwich and partially in Bourne. So uh, Bourne, Mass. is a small town that has seven villages that go from Pocasset to Monument Beach to Katomet. Um, so it's a somewhat, somewhat small, sleepy neighborhood. Um, but we have the uh, Coast Guard Station, uh, Air Station Cape Cod, and, and it's down in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, a, a small town out of Falmouth. Um, of particular interest and in where it all starts is where uh, my client, Adrian, while member of the uh, Coast Guard, enlisted in the Coast Guard, he was an IT person, a computer geek. Um, and he was stationed, as many of the Coasties uh, have been over the years, in Kodiak, Alaska. Kodiak, Alaska is exactly what just popped into your mind when you're envisioning Kodiak, Alaska is what it is. It's, it's the last outpost. People refer to wow. it maybe as a Siberia. It's, it's cold and, and dank and just terrible. Wow. Well, it turns out as an IT person who's now been in the uh, Coast Guard for, oh boy, at the time it may have been from five to 10 years, he collaborates uh, and works with other IT people. Well, It was at least one of which is Lisa Trebnikova. They became quite friendly. uh, Although when when you say friendly and you think of a relationship between a man and a woman, again, people have different connotations of relationships. We could be simply friendly and monogamous. We could have a sexual relationship. We could have any number of types of relationships. Keep in mind, though, at the time, they're in Kodiak, Alaska, and one cannot fraternize is the word they use in the military with other coasties or one is not supposed to, but we are adult men and women and we have certain proclivities towards one another. Well, uh, of interest, uh, they became very friendly and they, they, they would start the relationship by 
simply uh, meeting and and watching movies and uh, and he was always particularly fond of Star Trek and Star Wars and they would watch such videos while he was really preoccupied with it. Um, and I'll go on further in that. Okay. Can I At just interject rate, here just to recap so far? We're talking please. about the case, the criminal case of Commonwealth of Massachusetts versus Adrian Loya, L-O-Y-A, as you spelled. And it all started, this whole scenario, the, all the people involved met in Kodiak, Alaska, a remote outpost in up in Alaska, like just as you said, and the incidents that we're going to speak about happened down in Bourne because there's a Coast Guard station there. And one of the females involved was an IT person, as was the defendant. Do I have it right so far? You're doing well. and I can follow up because it wasn't, and I can give you the genesis of how we it all culminated in Bourne, Massachusetts. Okay. And I, I'll go on with my story. Sure. They, so um, he is, in fact, quite fond of her in and around this time. Who Who's her? Lisa Trub- he, Lisa Trebnikova. He became quite fond of okay, her. OK, he becomes fond yeah, that, of Lisa. Yeah, who is another IT person. But she wasn't horizontal with him on the um, on the on the scale. There. He, in fact, had more years of service. So this. This plays a part, ultimately, that he, I don't even want to use the word superior officer. He was superior to her because he had more years in service. Okay. That becomes important. Mm-hmm. Well, in and around this time, he's developed this relationship with her. He, he, he's quite fond with her. He didn't know at the time that she, in fact, was a lesbian. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, not, not that it plays in this day and age such a big deal, but he came to know that not only was she a lesbian, but she was in a significant relationship with a, another Coast Guard uh, woman who uh, was developing more and more. She wasn't stationed at that base, and that's um, her, ultimately her wife, um, Lisa's wife, uh, who was injured at the time as well, Anna, Anna Trubnikova. Anna. I'm holding a picture yeah. of them just to interject. They're both very attractive women, beautiful-looking ladies. See the plaque behind me? Yes. That's the that's the famous trial uh-huh. uh, right there. And that's she looked great there. That picture of the blonde and the yellow shirt is that's me cross-examining her. In fact, uh, the, the, the media always likes these pictures of me holding up the AK-47 <laughs> that he carried. He brought in Dr. the infamous uh, Dr. Kelly. That's the chief of police. That's Gary Nickerson. And that's them bringing my client out after the ultimate verdict. What county but, is this? What courthouse was this? Barnstable Superior Court. What judge presided? Judge Gary Nickerson. Gary Nickerson. Now, now retired. And the DA I tried the case against, Brian Glenny, Gle- is now a Superior Court judge sitting in Brockton. Right. Judge Glenny. Judge Glenny. Here's the, here's the, oh, here's the actual picture in the paper of me doing the closing and the little picture of Brian because I'm a lot better looking. <laughs> they wanted me and not him. So um, I'm just looking at some of these old newspaper articles, but I, I digress. So um, he learns of the relationship Anna and Lisa have, and not only has it flourished to the extent they are now engaged to one another to get married. So not, uh, not totally um, ruining his efforts. Um, Anna was away for some type of either family or a visit. She was away from Kodiak. Lisa, as the story goes, and I've been told, and by the way, at no point in time did anybody ever call Adrian Lawyer a liar. Nobody ever portrayed that. In fact, I think his mental illness played in to his credibility and veracity when he told some of these stories. Well, what but was his, a, excuse me for a moment, what was it? Was he diagnosed? What was his mental illness? Well, we'll get to that. Okay, I think, sorry, I'm jumping the gun. Because I have, I have three different, I have pretty much four different doctors with four different uh, diagnoses. Wow. Um, he, he was, to put it simply, I, I believe on the um, autism spectrum, um, but others, they have a major mental illness 
uh, major depressive disorder diagnosis. Dr. Holtzman from Bridgewater found him to be a major depression uh, predicate of mental illness. He had a lot. You might not recognize it, though, if you saw him. You would just think he was a, quote, computer nerd. So at any rate, we have the normal goings-on at the Coast Guard Station, Air Station, Kodiak, Alaska. And Anna is away. And Lisa calls uh, Adrian and says, why don't you come over and bring some of your TV shows? He, he again, was either into a sitcom or he'd watch the Star Trek trilogy or Star Wars. Uh, Really, really enthralled him. So he, as it goes, goes to Lisa's house one night in Kodiak, Alaska, and they're watching television. It's it's again noted now that, um, in fact, she's lesbian and she has a significant relationship and now maybe even going to get married. Undeterred, she it's getting later at night. She's been consuming alcohol. He may have had a drink, but she's under the influence. And at some point, nearly reaches over, touches his arm and says, why don't you come into my bedroom with me? He was flabbergasted and everybody he has told the story to to a fault, and maybe we're all male misogynists or something. Most everyone says, especially if you see how attractive she is, look back at my client and say, why didn't you just go in the bedroom and do what guys do? And But he was mortified, but both because I think of the mental illness that he was somewhat shy, although I could tell you about his prior girlfriends or sexual uh, uh times he's had with women it was not altogether normal so at any rate in this particular night it's getting late she's under the influence he had had a drink and she she goes to touch him and say come in with me and he he wards her off he says no i won't do it uh and she goes up into her bedroom and he's out watching tv eyes bugging out of his head trying to watch can't really grasp what just happened and then he hears a, a thump and he says, oh, and he becomes concerned of it. He goes to her bedroom door, opens the door, and now she's there. And he says, are you all right? I heard the noise. And she now approaches him once again and, and says, come in, come in. It wasn't a drag here. But all she does is merely touch him and says, come join me. And he again uh, wards her off, goes back outside, and is, again, sh- in shock. That's all that happened. He never even claims more happened or less happened or any of that. That's all that happened. And that's, that was his having been molested or raped is how he's calling. She sexually assaulted me. So next day, uh, very early, he, he wakes up because he fell asleep on the couch, finds his way out of there and leaves. But it's eating away at him. Keep in mind the, the actions she did and how he reacted and so on and so forth. It was, that's all that actually happened. But it festered in him and ate away at him. And, and he, he, in fact, not only started developing suicide ideations, he, he was beside himself. He couldn't focus on the job. He couldn't do anything. So now two or three weeks go by, but it's eating at him so bad what had happened that he had been sexually assaulted in his mind, that he had been, he wants to use the word, he had been mind raped. Excuse me for a minute. Did you just say mind raped? Yes, as he called it. Because you know, I was mortified saying, how do you call that a rape? How did she rape you? You know, as you're said, telling us this, I just have to comment. Right out of the gate, something's amiss in my head. Because no... Oh. It's not a normal reaction that it would overtake your life. Think about how many nights of the week. That happens every night in the week between men and women. It's as common every as the nose on your night. face. That's why people were so troubled by this. And it's ultimately where the story's going. And what I'm going to, well, when we conclude with this in Bourne, Massachusetts, it festered for two years. Mm. It happened two years ago before he hatched his plot, which took better than six months. So a few weeks go by after the mine rape. He goes to his superiors saying, I have to report this. So he goes to his superiors, 
tells them what happened. I can only imagine their eyes rolling back in their head. They start an investigation. They bring her in. They speak to her, get her side of the story, which I never really got. I'm sure she either just denied it, but there was that still that funny little word of fraternizing. So they took the matter uh, under advisement. One of the their theories is that we have to separate these two. Whatever happened, they can't work together anymore. So, and she's getting married. Anna and uh, Lisa get sent to Cape Cod, Massachusetts. That's their new station, air station, uh, Cape Cod with the Coast Guard. Adrian Lawyer gets uh, sent to Chesapeake, Virginia. Now, it's still eating away at here. He barely is set up in Chesapeake, Virginia, when he gets a letter from the Coast Guard, which essentially a letter is his, not a demotion, but it indicates if you get a letter that you are never going to advance in the Coast Guard. Is that what you're holding up? I, I, I have it somewhere, but he got the letter. The letter was, again, he was the victim of this terrible mind raping. And now he's getting sanctioned. He's getting in trouble for what she did to him. Were they sanctioned? She, was that other female sanctioned, Lisa? No. But, and the reason why he recognized more serious consequences was he was the superior to her. Yeah. And he put himself in a position where alcohol was involved with a subordinate and something happened. Mm. So whether or not they concluded that something of a sexual nature happened, he was drinking with a subordinate. So now you have Adrian Lawyer who believes he was raped. His now whole career, because he's now invested over 10 years, because he was 33 years old at the time, mm. that now his train with the Coast Guard is off the track. They're not kicking him out. But if you get such a letter, you're never going to go up in rank. Can you appeal it? So, no. So Yikes. he was devastated. Mm. He was devastated. He is now becoming more recluse. Uh, and he starts to hatch the plot, the plot that I have to get back at her. I can't let her do this to anybody else ever. And this is this now this plot I'm talking about is going to take close to two years to ultimately come to fruition. Keep it in mind, he's documenting everything. And he's got the document you may have seen called Lawyer's War. And it's and I've got a copy of it somewhere, but it's about yeah, it's it's. It's about this thick, 450 pages. Wait a minute, hold on. Lawyer's War. Is it a manifesto? What is it? It's a manifesto. That he wrote? Yeah. That he wrote. 450 pages. Drew, I've got a question at this point. Um, And I I know we're going to jump ahead in a bit to the case itself, but during this time, was he not investigated by the Coast Guard? Didn't they put him under medical exam to— test him or to assess him or was he just let to his own devices? He was left to his own devices. He went on occasion to see the shrink on base, but it was more for depression and uh, uh, somewhat of the suicide ideations, they call it. And that was concerning to them, but they weren't reaching out to give him a support Mm. structure uh, at all. And, And now he's, Really further, I use the word recluse. I mean, he's just, he's not only bashful, he just doesn't, and some of the people in the diagnoses for his mental illness say he, he he's not a good communicator. He doesn't communicate. He doesn't know how to act as you and I would in a, in a normal discussion or relationship. Um, so he even became more isolated and focused in his world of Star Trek and Star Wars and all of that. Um, Delusional? Delusional. Delusional. A lot of them. Some say said the delusions. So stay with me. He now has to get her. She can't victimize somebody else. And he Googles and finds that they have been transferred to Bourne, Massachusetts. He's in Chesapeake, Virginia. He gets an address for them. He does let's call it a scouting mission. And he drives from Chesapeake up here to their condominium complex interesting of which is about three miles from my house Wow! and uh he puts a hunting camera on a tree outside because he had to verify that they were actually there 
because he couldn't go in there and victimize somebody if his if his two weren't there. He goes after a day or two, gets the hunting camera, takes it off the tree, validates that they are in fact there, goes back to Virginia. In the same time, Virginia, he starts going, what some people do is go, they go paintballing. He would go when it was more of an airsoft gun where he'd do these shooting exercises. He was actually practicing mm. what, what was going to happen. So while he's doing such things like that, he was going to shooting. He was buying the weaponry. He was ultimately going to bring up and utilize. Uh, he was verifying where they were. He was buying, you know, these outfits for that, that shooting game. You know, he had knee pads and he had masks and so on and so forth. And he's accumulating the firearms. So the ultimate day comes and, and, the culmination of it was not only was he going to take Lisa out, out of life, in fact, kill her. That mm-hmm. was his plan. He um, wanted to be taken out himself. So it was going to be death by cop. And he was going to see that it be done. So not only do we have the manifesto, but we have the manifesto put on an, a, a thumb drive of which he left the manifesto and the laptop computer in the hotel room right at the Bourne Bridge to drive the three or four miles where Anna and Lisa lived. So he left in the hotel room knowing that he's gonna be dead because the whole world has to know what happened to me and what motivated me to do this. So he he leaves it in the hotel room on the computer, the manifesto, and he puts it all on a thumb drive. He wore around his neck because this wasn't gonna, this wasn't just gonna be a murder. He wanted everybody to know how she victimized him and how I was the victim. So you you're coming to my favorite part, you know, the, the little thumbnail sketch you gave me in the courtroom. I can't wait for this part. Mm. I'm holding up a photo. Yeah. Okay. What you told me, how we set up the scene. So now it's coming to fruition. And again, in his mind, I am going to die this night. Right. So he had the thumb drive around his neck. He had all the weaponry and his shotgun he had the rifle I'm holding up in that picture in the closing argument. It was an assault rifle. He had the nine millimeter handgun on his hip, and he had the shotgun he used to breach the door. If you blow the the handles off the door, you get right in. So now he's verified he's there. This is going to be the culmination of my payback, my revenge, and he's going to die. So what better night to do it than on your birthday? So it's low. I know the exact time because I just watched the body camera, which he was wearing. Because not only do I have it around my neck while I did this, I'm going to videotape all of this so everybody can see. It's jaw dropping. And I just watched it an hour ago, again, to refresh myself. So it's now after 1.30 a.m. on his birthday. He leaves the hotel room right at the Bourne Bridge. He starts making the trek. I know it. It's the same road I drive every day. So I can see the different stores from his camera on his chest. Mm. And he's he's heading to their house. Um, and he's got this elaborate plan. What is he going to do? Well, they live in off of a cul-de-sac. So before you get into the cul-de-sac, there's one main road. Well, he's I'm going to divert and give myself as much time as I want if I leave my car right at the head of the cul-de-sac tortured on fire because now the police can't get into the whole development. They're going to have to go by foot. So what does he do? He uh, has some type of coals and some other igniting device to light his car up on fire. But before he lights it up, he takes, he had had made these, what appear to be makeshift bombs, whereas he took liters of Coke and seven up and filled them with, um, Juicy fruits, the different colored fruits. So it looked like some type of explosive device. And he put uh, on one of them, he put like a cell phone. On another one, he had it hooked up to like a radio. So it looked like actual devices because this would further deter police response when they right. came there. A, they can't get by with their trucks because the car's on fire. Now they encounter these bombs. So they don't know what the hell they got going on here. Can I just interject here? Sure. This is the part that I love. The I'm not loving that it happened. It's appalling. But 
you told me that he took speakers and had Star Trek music blaring and the whole neighborhood woke up. He had them on the car prior to torching his car on fire. He had it's crazy. He had on the car. He had, he had a, a boom box. A that boom box. Go boom boxes. And he, and he set it up wherein uh, it was both Star Wars and Star Trek. And he was playing these ridiculous move like he's in a movie. He was playing out crazy. Boy, and you know me, Diane. I'm a Star Trek fan. This is really (laughs) disturbing to think that uh, this man disparaged us. Anyway, go ahead. (laughs) So he's playing the music. Now, the police, not only did they get a call about maybe a car on fire, but now there's gunshots. And now they come in full force uh, to try to get into the cul-de-sac, the burning car. Gunshots. So... For a moment, you got to we know what we're dealing with, especially after the fact that we're talking about what what transpired because we know what transpired. But as they come on the scene, they don't know if they have a, an active shooter shooters. They don't know how many people yeah. they don't know what they're going into. So their response was very slow. And I'll get back to that because that's pretty important. Adrian makes his way from the head of that cul-de-sac all the way into them. It's probably two or three or four football fields. He left the assault rifle in a snowbank outside because after he did his deed, he was going to go out and take up a location, like a sniper location. And he uh, went up to their apartment door, took the shotgun. As he called it, I breached the door by shooting off the shooting off the hinges. I went in and I, I just watched it today and it's, it's still puts the hair on the back of my neck up when he went into their bedroom and you see the two of them, they're jostled. They don't know what's going on. What's going on? Why are you here? Who are you? What are you doing? Keep in mind, they haven't seen each other for two years. Mm. They have no idea what's going on. Um, And they say, what's going on? Leave us alone. What are you doing? They see the gun. He has, he has the sidearm. He has discarded the shotgun out of the bottom of the stairs but he has another weapon besides the nine millimeter and he has handcuffs. He says, put them on. And they're not listening to him. They're on either side of the bed, put them on, do this. And they're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Please leave us alone. Don't hurt us. Don't hurt us. And at some point, one of them came out and said, now he had a mask on. Remember, not only is he dressed up as a stormtrooper, but he also has a mask on, but they, they get his name or something. They say, lawyer, it's you. What are you doing? Don't hurt us. Please don't hurt us. Don't hurt us. And he's just saying, shut up. You know what you did to me. And this is your payback. And you're going to get it. I don't want to hurt you. And I don't want to hurt you. I want her. Now put those handcuffs on. They're screaming. They're crying. They don't know what to do. They don't put the handcuffs on. Leave us alone. They eventually, now they get off of this twi- uh, queen-size bed onto the floor. They kind of see him with their weapon. They're real scared now. They take the mattress and try to flip it over on them. They're peeking out from behind the mattress up at him saying, no, don't hurt us. Don't hurt us. At this, he even had thoughts of, of calling this off. But once they, that act of defiance and say, leave us alone, he unloads the five, the nine millimeter, which carries extra rounds. It was 12 or 13. Again, not wanting to hurt Anna. In fact, he didn't even want Anna hearing Lisa go into the death rows, he brought earmuffs for her. He was going to oh, handcuff her, gosh. keep her away, give her earmuffs, uh, but they're not obeying him. So he unloads the firearm into the mattress. She must have got hit, Lisa, a half dozen or more times, but Anna gets hit too. So they're wow. in bad, bad shape, okay? Now it's over. He's unloaded one firearm. Now he's leaving. Goes down the stairs is out. What does Anna do? Because the phone was right there. Lisa had tried to call 911 when they were down scrambling around the room. She never made it. But now Adrian's left. So Anna takes the phone and her love is in her arms. Her wife's in her arms. Lisa essentially is in her death throes right at that point. Now Anna's on the phone with 911 and it's chilling. We'd like to pause the conversation for just a moment to play an excerpt from the 911 call, the night of the attack. Again, this is edited for time and audio clarity, but it does provide a snapshot of what was happening that night. 911. 
talking to the police saying, you know, please, she's dying. I need help. Please help. Is the, is he there? Is he still there? I don't know. Please help me. Wow. He's long out in the snowbank now getting the firearm, waiting for the police response, which is very slow. Why? Because they don't know if they have an active shooter. They don't know if these bombs mm. are going to go off. They don't yeah. know what that. So Anna starts from asking for help to start swearing at him, saying she's dying right here. And you're not coming to help us. You know, you son of a bitch. Get here and help me. She's dying. My wife is dying in my very arms. Keep in mind now, she's hit in the arm. I think she was hit in the, in the sternum, hit in the other arm. Wow. Uh, so she was not in a good way. And it was, it was a bloody mess. While Adrian is outside, now police are responding. There's four of them coming up the street. There's about three or four feet of snow. And, and Adrian now takes aim with that firearm and actually shot at one of them. I think he wanted, he didn't want to take out law enforcement, but I think he wanted to give them some motivation to take him out. So he sees a silhouette. And as he said, as we were trained, I see a silhouette that's coming to assault me. I take aim and shoot. And he shot Jared McDonald, a born police officer. Mm. So now the police, oh, what do we have? We have an active shooter. So there's three of them now coming up. One of them takes the shot. Officer, who's fine today, he got off the force. He's one of our selectmen in Bourne now. Um, and help him help the wounded officer and the others coming up. Now, all of a sudden, either an act of cowardice or coming to understand this is not right. Adrian, instead of getting shot and killed per his plan, he goes out on the street with his arms raised up of interest. He took off, you know, the camera he was going to have of him being taken out and killed. He now takes that camera and puts it on an adjacent snowbag, which is about 10 feet away, as he's filming himself doing this. My yeah. arms up there saying, you know, I surrender, I give up, I give up. Huh. As police come on, get him down and arrest him. So this whole thing was, this whole thing from A to Z is on a camera and you saw the whole thing. And I saw it. It's not you know, a, after the fact, naturally, but. Oh, yeah. After the fact. I, and I've got it. That's um, crazy. It, 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 my copy does not have audio, but you don't really need audio when you see the terror in their eyes coming from his chest. And remember, when I have something on my chest here and I'm doing such things as a gun or I'm moving right. or I'm running. There's obstruction. But Anna, Anna lived to tell the story. So that was that was helpful. She lived. She, she yeah. recovered. And she was, it was tough on the stand because it was so emotional. Oh. Um, so the police now have my guy in custody and they bring him around to the station. I have all this on videotape and he can't get it off his chest fast enough. Meeting the police officers are thinking they're going to have to use their best interrogation tactics. They didn't need to. He was saying, oh no, I then took the four firearms I went there, I drove, I put up those fake devices, I burned my car, so, and then I walked in, I breached the door, and I shot her because I was raped. I was victimized by it. The cops are like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Drew. Can we just start from the beginning? Drew, I have Can a I question. I have a question for you because this is Dude. this is where you come in. You were called by him, uh, is that right? Or, or how did you enter the case, and what was your thought process when you stepped into it? Thought process was a few things. I'm, I, I've been... 
the one and only for over 20 years that is qualified to do the capital, uh, to do the murder cases. So I'm, I'm qualified by the uh, Committee for Public Counsel up in Boston, and uh, they have a murder case in Bourne. And so they, okay. they reach out to me and say, Drew, we know you're a private lawyer. Would you help us? We believe this man is going to be indigent or unable to hire appropriate counsel. Will you take it and we will pay you? I looked at it. I was troubled because it was so close to home. Yeah. And at the time I read somewhere, I, I had done some 35 murders by that time, but it was so close to home and it was so troubling, but I had, I have some pretty in-depth working knowledge of the insanity defense. Yeah. Um, and I saw that that was clearly what this was. Uh, I believe the insanity defense, we can go into that at another time, but it is so archaic in our system that it never is going to work. It's never going to be an effective defense. Even like this case that my doctor said he's not criminal responsible. The biggest paid for what I've referred to as a prostitute Marty Kelly, Harvard psychiatrist, they'd bring him in on any case in any whack job in the world. He'd say, they're fine. He comes and says, he's not criminal responsible. He tells the DA that mm -hmm. this guy's out. He's out of it. He's wow. been on a ton of cases. DA says to me, he says, Drew, you're going to get it. You're gonna, you'll be able to waive the jury. We'll go jury waived in front of a judge. You'll get a not guilty by reason of insanity but we got to cover our rear end here. Cause one of the doctors says he's on autism spectrum. That's all we need is these highlight uh, headlines reading, you know, autistic man, not guilty by reason of insanity. We got to cover our, our rears here. Do you mind? We continue this case. I'm going to bring in one more doctor who was suggested by Marty Kelly, Dr. Eidershine, Judith Eidershine. She's not only is a lawyer, she's a psychiatrist from Harvard. She charges one gazillion dollars. And, uh, she comes in, looks at all the evidence, and she comes back and says, he's responsible. Yeah, he, had a, he has a minor mental illness, but uh, he's responsible for his actions. And I said, oh, really? Okay. So I got off track a little bit how I came in. I, got, I came in because I was asked to take hey, over the case, and I did it. Right. Before Public you comment. go much further, we have a couple of questions at this juncture. Hold Please. your thought. Hold your thought in the story, but Jordan, you had something, and then I had a couple. Go ahead. Well, my, my question is, I mean, you're going into this, asked to be a public defender and to represent him as he's they've got that right, but you know, you've already described it in lurid detail now, and you had to know that this was a bizarre, horrible, violent situation with a lot of agony, and yet you took it on. I, th I just that that's noble on your part because everyone deserves a defense. Uh, but when you're doing a case like this, are you thinking, I'm going to try to get this guy off of criminal because of insanity, but do I want this guy out walking the streets? Well, well that's one of those. That, that's, again, you're a dinosaur in suggesting those things. And that's why we as the practitioners dislike the law as it's written because of such questions as yours, mm -hmm. that even if a juror believes that he's mentally ill and he should not be responsible for his actions, they are still very hard pressed to, to find him guilty, uh, find him not guilty because of lack of criminal responsibility or insane, because they're afraid they're gonna see him walking down the street in front of the house, which is absurd because whenever you're found uh, not guilty by reason of insanity, you go right to the loony bin. And it's not a lesson until a loony bin, uh, Bridgewater State Hospital indicates that you're not a danger to yourself or the community, uh, would they ever let you go? And are you kidding me on facts like this? You'd never be hard pressed to see him ever out. If they found him responsible and on top of that, they said he could be in a penal institution, which is ridiculous. He never he never got so much as a speeding ticket in his life. Well, um, my, my question was, a minute ago, I heard you speaking about, you know, you were saying jury waived. I'm assuming that he was indicted on a first-degree murder charge. And correct me if I'm wrong, I defer to you. You're the one with the law degree, not me. I was under the impression that you can't have a bench trial first-degree murder indictment. Oh, you can if the DA acquiesces to your request. 
So it's well, the only that's never, right? Books. Yeah, it's the only charge in the books that actually says the degree of murder will be determined by the jury. So wow. because of that one statement, if the DA objects, which they do quite frequently, yeah. you've got to go to a jury. But they were, because all the experts are telling him he's not guilty by reason, but he's not criminal responsible, they were going to do that until his eye is shine. Of particular interest, because this this reawakens some of my uh, memories. There are four experts in the uh, lawyers' mental health. Dr. Idashein, a forensic psychiatrist hired by Cape and Islands, testified Thursday that she believed lawyer understood the wrongfulness of his actions and was able to conform his conduct to the law. Idashein, who said she was paid, had has been paid more than $37,000, more money than I made. And she only worked, she said, 37000 for 90 hours of work, which is baloney because I didn't even let her talk to my client. So she probably did 10 hours of which, but of course they threw her up here and all of that. So she makes $37,000. It was comical. However, on this case, but did not meet with, did not meet with lawyer personally, diagnosed him with, Avoidant personality disorder and borderline personality disorder, which she said are pervasive and would affect all aspects of who he is as a person. The disorder would make him hypersensitive to rejection and constantly be on the lookout for others trying to harm or slight him, she said. His 400-page memoir he wrote before the attack, his documentation of his plans, his interviews with the police, however, provided evidence that he knew what he was doing was wrong and was able to control himself. That's what she based her ultimate conclusion on. Remember, criminal responsibility. Appreciate the wrongfulness of your conduct. And conform your conduct to the requirements of law. The two-prong. My fellow, who's actually, I was going to pop in and see his picture of him. Oh. Dr. Dan- Dr. Daniel. This is... Just a question I have, Drew. You yes. took that case. You lived in the community. Tell me the feel. You you obviously heard of it before you took it. What was the buzz around town? It must have been, that town must have been set on its ear. Well, you know, it, it was set on its ear, but I, I know on certain terms, let it out that this guy was out of his mind. He was nuts. No qualms about it, that this guy was out of his mind. And I let it, I let it all over the papers. Was I trying to poison the potential jury pool? Absolutely, I was. And I wanted everybody to know it. So, you know, and in my very first sentence of my opening statement, folks, this is not a whodunit. He did it. And he did it because he couldn't control himself. So keep in mind, going into the case, it's not like other cases when you have to prove identification. You have to prove who did it. I, from the get-go, you know, conceded all of their evidence. So I wasn't testing and prodding and poking at and scratching their evidence as it came in. I let it in, let it in until my case was coming up and the doctors, that's the big thing. So we impaneled in August the 28th. It took us several days to impanel. I asked the judge to do separate questions for these jurors as to whether or not they could accept the insanity defense, whether they'd keep an open mind to it. I in fact wanted him to ask particular questions I wanted to change the law, in fact. I wanted him to see if they would be willing to find him guilty, but not criminal responsible. Something that the, that this case was ultimately appealed to the SJC, and the SJC said, great idea, Sagadelli, but we're not ready to adopt it. Just so people know, SJC, Attorney Sagadelli, just referred to as the Supreme Judicial Court, the highest court in our Commonwealth, just so you know. And the oldest court in the United States of America. The case I gave you, that was their right. siding on it. Because of time, I'd like to know what finally happened. So obviously he was convicted, I guess. Is that what happened? They, they, they came back. I kept him out for 14 hours. They come back with guilty findings. Now, after the closing and after the judge's instructions and so forth, the judge always take you up to the bench and ask you, um, well, do you think I gave the right instructions? And as we're talking to the DA, my client looks over at the jury and says, I'm guilty, guilty. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Spooky. Unbeknownst to the lawyers and the judge, the, 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 the cameraman who's running the whole trial 
sends a note to the judge and sends that picture of him mouthing, I have that, saying, I'm guilty. So now, before they even can deliberate, we have to voir dire each and every 16 jurors to see if they heard it, how it affects them, can they be impartial? In other words, the whole case almost blew up in our face. Can I interject here? I understand what you just said, but the layperson, and there are many people that tune in that aren't from the United States. What you just said was, after your client mouthed to the jurors, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, you had, the court voided individually each juror, which only simply, it's simply one by one, the judge will inquire of the juror. If they heard it. they inquired of each and every one. That's a voir dire, that's all. The vast majority did not hear or see him do everything, anything. They thought he was creepy looking. Only one juror said, I think he said guilty. Another juror said, I think he said, I'm not guilty. So they didn't, it didn't affect them. Okay. The judge let him get out again. They came back with a verdict. He did, as per the statute, had to sentence him to life in prison. Uh, did he interest, react? Uh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, he, he he's very flat effect. I could show you some medical stuff. Very flat. There's almost, in fact, very flat. I was, as you can tell, I get a little animated. He, after he did that, and I now know they have it on camera, I was so furious, I almost slept through the bars and had my hand around his neck. I said, if you ever try to sabotage my case again, I'll kill you. (laughs) He didn't deny it. He didn't deny it. Now, you'll find this interesting. He, um, going into the trial, he hands out through the bars. I don't even know how he got it. He must have manned it. No, he handed out through the bars. I said, what is that? It was like a pin you'd wear. But you know the locale, the uh, the the locale they wear on the rebellion in Star Wars. It's this like horseshoe shaped red and black. And I yeah. said, "What is that?" He goes, "That's the symbol of the rebellion." I said, oh "Okay." My God. He said, "Will you wear it?" To you? Yeah, I still have it at home in my at home on my dresser. Is this pin of the Star Wars? I'm holding up a phaser. Just wanted to. Oh, that's point. a great. Phaser. But it's not. It's not loaded. It's. It's. It's that. There are geeks like me, but we're not killing people. I just wanted to make that point. No, that's perfect. <laughs> and he was a geek. He he was a geek boy. I could go on for him, as you can tell, forever. So talk about the media attention. They. I had a camera crew come out from the BBC. Did a huge. If you could pick that up, and I have it somewhere, you would love it. They came down to my boat. They said, Drew, you, you're kind of a colorful fellow. Can we take a picture of your boat? I said, I'm going out to dinner with my wife and my daughter. Come on down. So I have a 38-foot cigarette boat with crime pays across the side. So they're the, Imagine the film that. crew. That's great. Crime the pays. Film, what a great it. name for it. a boat. I love it. The film crew comes down and takes some pictures. We're going out to dinner. I said, hey, Sharon, these guys, these old, these fellas from uh, England, they're not bad guys. I said, hey, you guys want to go to dinner with us? So they jump in the boat, and now with the camera, they're interviewing me in my boat as the sun's going down, talking about the case. I think it he needs his own gone. TV show. He's better than Matlock, I'm telling you right now. I know it. And they produced it, and, and it went kind of big. And then I have people over in Europe contacting me about the case. I had another guy contact me last week or the week before about the case, saying, Drew, I saw everything about it, and I saw your client. I want you to know when he faced that, that was satanic. The, he, the devil is inside of him. People are still sending me stuff like that. I could see it in his face. The devil had taken him over. You should write a book about this, you know. Oh, it's unbelievable. I didn't know you before that. We just were on an elongated trial recently, as you know. As you, How could you forget? You know, the first day when I met you, when I walked up to the back of the, like, the door, we were trying to get in the court. Remember it was locked? And I said, yes. I'll go around. You know, so I went downstairs through the, the clerk's office, up the stairs and around. By that time, a court officer had let you in. And you know what my first impression was of you? You had taken all my court reporting equipment at the door and you had wheeled it in and you placed it where I belong up in my post oh, there. And nice? I said, what a nice man. I did. Immense. I said, I'm going to like this guy. And that, I won't forget I sh- it. That picture I showed up on the wall, I just found the article of her actually testifying. Whoa. Uh, Who? Um, at, the, the woman that lived, at, Anna? Yeah. Anna, in the yellow, blonde hair, beautiful. She obviously, two years later, had recovered. Anna Trimnikova recalls the final moments with her wife after Adrian Lawyer's shooting rampage. Did this man, Adrian Lawyer, uh, naturally he's gone for life up 
serving time. But does he have a family? Were they there? Were they supportive? Did he? I mean, they, they weren't. His, his mom and dad had had estranged from one another. Minimal contact. Keep it in mind, he's he's got this mental illness mm-hmm. that he was a loner as it was. So he had kind of disconnected with his family. Uh, I think he had a brother. Uh, she was choking up on the stand. I heard a lot of gushing blood, gurgling almost. Trimnikova said, Elisa, she started choking like a wet cough. I, for myself, knew she was dead at that point. And she bent down and kissed her cheek. It was really stunning. I, I willed until the day I pass, say that we need to go over these laws. We need, it, it's simply not fair. There are a lot of people out there uh, with major mental illnesses. People tell me all the time or ask me all the time, Drew, do you know your client did it? And in fact, I say with a straight face, you know, they've still got to prove it. Pretty much, cops don't get it that wrong. Most of them are guilty. But for these people that cannot control themselves, like this guy. This guy should not have been found guilty. He should have been found guilty, yet not criminally responsible. And he'd still be in a loony bin and not in the penal institution. Well, you did your level best at the end of the day. I did my level best, folks. And anytime you want to chat, let me know. And yeah, there's the We want to go out on your boat, your your cigarette (laughs) boat. There's Ida Shine. That's Anna. Wow. That's this, uh, that's I'm telling book. you, you have all the makings for a book. And um, I just want to tell too. people that Bourne, Massachusetts is kind of the gateway to Cape Cod. We call it, Bostonians call it the Cape. You never say Cape Cod. Right. You never say I'm going to Cape Cod. And by the way, it's Bon. Bon, okay. Born, Bon. It depends on where you're from. But. I assure no, you, <laughs> you're going to have a lovely time there. It's a delightful place, and this is not the norm. This is not what happens yeah. on the Cape. We have one absolutely wonderful restaurants. My best friend's the Lobster Trap, right? And born, you get the best meal on the Cape. And how about the Falmouth I, Road Race? Don't you run that? I've run it. I've run it 23 times. What is it? Yep. A 5K? 7.2. And it's in. Um, August is it? When is it? Refresh my memory yeah, on the that. The worst part: it's August, and it's always eighty-five yeah. and ninety percent humidity, so it's brutal. Yeah, they get a huge crowd. Okay. <laughs> huge. Well, anyway, thank you. I get you. something good. I'll share it with you. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much. I'll be available. You guys have myself. Who's better than you? Who's better than you? I'll Nobody. Do my best. <laughs> See you later. Bye. Bye, See you guys. Here's an important bit of news to follow up. Officer Jared McDonald was shot and the bullet lodged close to his spine. It was a difficult recovery for him, and the greater Bourne community reached out in many ways to lend support, including today's podcast guest. McDonald was forced to retire due to the disability. He eventually ran for selectman in the town of Bourne and won a seat. This is Diane Godfrey. This podcast is meant for entertainment purposes only. If you need legal representation, please consult an attorney. I do not have a law degree. Over the years, many people have contacted me seeking legal advice. I am not qualified to dispense any legal advice. Before we close the courtroom door on this podcast, we remind you that All Rise with Diane Godfrey is available on all podcast platforms. We invite you to subscribe, download, rate, and review this podcast. You've been listening to All Rise with Diane Godfrey. True stories from inside the courthouse, from the lady who wrote everything down. Case dismissed. <laughs>